Tonight's top story. Tonight's top story. A Chicago theater rocked by scandal. Harvey Weinstein is in the news again. Harvey Weinstein is Harvey Weinstein. A Chicago theater rocked by scandal. Inappropriate behavior with an underage boy. Another woman comes forward. Another woman. Another accuser. Louis C.K. Kevin Spacey. Alleging years of sexual abuse. Today's top story once again, men behaving badly. The Me Too Welcome to the Reinvention Podcast. I'm Aaron Anderson. Today, my co-host Tara Cortland and I discover what it feels like to be at the front of the Me Too movement and change an entire industry. In fact, our guest is at the forefront of one of the most significant changes in the entertainment industry in decades. And that's not an exaggeration. And she did all of that while also fighting for her own life every single day. Visit reinventionpodcast.com for transcripts and free resources. Because sometimes you need to reinvent yourself without starting over. So here we are in the lovely Canvas studio. I have Tara Cortland, my lovely co-host. Thank you very much for being here again. No problem. And I would like to introduce you to one of the coolest people I know. She used to be a student of mine many years ago, And that's kind of the journey I want to talk about because today she came back to teach a class at the place that she used to be a student. Did it feel like coming home a little bit? Yeah, it did. Okay, good. Um, And she killed it. It was fantastic. So she started as an actor and now she is part of or founder of an international company with, I suppose you would call them offices in New York or locations in New York and Chicago and other places. And she's right now at the head forefront of a tectonic shift in the way that things are done in theater and film. So I don't know if you've heard uh, these names, Harvey Weinstein, Kevin Spacey, these ring a bell. Well, not for any good reasons. Not for any good reasons, right? right? Is this part of your story? This is absolutely part of my story. So the Me Too movement and the whole idea of changing the way that we do things and changing what used to be Tonya is absolutely at the forefront of that. So the company that she started um, is trying to figure out how to do theater and film in new ways. Her colleagues work with HBO on all their things. It's intimacy direction. So the idea is uh, if there is a – so as a fight director, we do – non-consensual sex scenes, rapes, and that is a bad thing. And we have procedures in place to make sure that no one is physically hurt and no one is emotionally hurt. But there really wasn't any way to do consensual sex scenes where it's or, or, or any type of intimacy, anything where two people are across the table from each other or in bed with each other or sitting with each other and having real emotions that doesn't entangle all kinds of stuff. And so what Tonya has done and is doing is creating a whole new vocabulary to fix things. And I, I got to tell you, I think this is some of the most important work ever. I, and I mean that honestly. And it was very exciting for me today to see how far what you've done has come from where it started when you mm-hmm. were a student. Yeah. So, uh, Tara, this is Tonya Cena. Tonya Cena, this is Tara. Uh, and, uh, I just think the journey from actor to 
now leading the world's change to make the world a better place, I think is pretty cool. <laughs> Thanks. I think so, too. <laughs> so is this is this helping with the problem where in a sex scene or an intimacy scene, one an actor can just decide to fill the other person up without? Yes, this prevents that. This is a protocol that prevents that. Um, it takes the uh, responsibility of the choreography of these scenes out of the hands of the actors and puts it into the hands of the choreographer. So this 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 has to have been a major problem that no one's ever talked about in probably Hollywood and theater in general, right? Like, I, I never really thought about it till Aaron started talking about what it was you did. But this just has to be an ongoing thing, right? You've got yeah. two, two people and one of them is just going to be creepy. Right. Right. Or, uh, and has permission to be creepy. Right. Or and, a space and there's to nothing, be. And, and there's sometimes nothing you can do about it. it's two people who aren't being creepy. Sometimes it's two people who want to have sex and uh, or the two characters want to have sex, but they don't know exactly how to get their bodies together because the only way to get their bodies together is to actually explore that. And that's not safe. Because we don't we don't have, you know, it's a it's a breeding ground for for a mess when you have two actors and you're like, OK, go at it. Try to do something consensual. And there's no boundaries. There's no rules. So, of course, somebody's going to overstep rules and harass and assault somebody because nobody gave them any guidelines. Would you. So I didn't I deliberately didn't filter in on anything. So could you give her the the five minute version of how this all started and where this went? Sure. Five minute version. Um, so I was a performer and then I um, started doing stage combat. I wanted to be a stage combat teacher. And in the exploring of stage combat and the discipline and technique and how order, how much order there was in it, I fell into choreographing sex scenes and intimacy scenes and realized that there was no leading person in charge of that, that there was no technique that, that was set anywhere and decided that that was what I wanted my thesis to be about was to chase those scenes and create a technique because I could no longer watch my actors be abused because I had been abused so many times in these scenes. So I wanted to not only make the scenes look better because they looked so crappy, um, but I wanted them to be safer. So the same thing that stage combat does. It makes it aesthetically better, but it also makes it safer. And I wanted that for intimacy scenes. And um, as I started to unwrap this and sort of peel the onion, so to say, I realized how detailed and how big of a gaping hole this really was in the industry. And it really led me to creating this protocol, um, but having to fight a lot of fights along the way to convince people this was necessary. So how, how does choreographing one of these works? You, is, is it put your hand here, now put your hand here, now touch the other person here, now... How, it can be. Walk me through how it goes. It can be. It depends on the actors and it depends on the scene. Um, if you have, especially if you have two actors who have um, not a whole lot of acting experience, then yes, you may have to guide them through those moments touch to touch or at least give them a framework of what the skeleton of the scene is going to be before they um, are allowed to follow their own impulses because we do want actors to have impulses and a lot of the resistance to this work is well if you choreograph these scenes they won't look real and uh, the thing is that they're not real they're not supposed to be real they're supposed to be telling a story so we don't want them to look real if they look real then we're doing something wrong 
So what we want is for them to tell the story. So we try to get the word real out of our mouths. And by choreographing these moments and saying, okay, um, this is the framework of the scene. We're going to, um, you know, you're going to be uh, embracing each other and then moving towards the bed. And then we're going to, you know, push him on the bed and then get on top of him and straddle him. So we're just just map this out really quick. Talk about what the choreography is going to be. And um, and when you talk about the choreography, you have to take into consideration their physical boundaries that they have. So um, somebody might have a physical boundary that we have to work around. And that might be, well, I can't, I, that's great, but I, my body doesn't move that way. Or, you know, I, I need to keep my hips here. Or um, I can't be touched over here because I have a bad shoulder or a bad neck. Or I have a tube in my chest, which I have. So we have to work around those things sometimes. And so the work has to be tailored to every single actor. And I don't come in with preconceived choreography and say, this is the choreography, do it. It doesn't work that way with this work. You have to come in with almost nothing a skeleton, and then all the tailoring detail work comes out of the actors themselves so that they feel like they are using their impulses and I'm not inflicting an impulse on them. So that way it still does have a, a sort of a, a, a natural hint to it, but that it is not them making those decisions. It's still the choreographer making those decisions because actors are not necessarily choreographers. So asking them to choreograph their own scene of intimacy is asking them to perform intimacy, is to just be intimate with somebody. And that's not professional. We need them to have a separation. And the way that we separate reality from fiction, from the character's sex life versus the actor's sex life, is by giving them a container to move around in within the choreography. Then they feel free to explore it because somebody else gave it to them and they're not exploring it with their mouths and their hands. What's, what's interesting to me is so as a, as a fight director, right? If I'm called in to choreograph a rape scene, there's two people involved in that. And one person is trying to get away and one person is trying to go forward. And so that directionality becomes really important because the, it's, usually, it's usually a woman who's moving away. And you can, you can choreograph a, a, a way of trying to get there that doesn't necessarily bring them emotionally into a, ter- in, into a realization about something about themselves. But – uh, it's often harder to choreograph from the, the man's perspective, the, the aggressor's perspective, because for the actor to do that well, they have to recognize in themselves some impulse to move into that space. And they have to say, yeah, I could do that. So there's probably not a woman in the world who hasn't recognized I could be in this position and I would like to be out of that position. So you can play a truthful way out. But there aren't that many men who are willing to put themselves emotionally and say, I could be in the man's position and move away and move towards. And so that becomes, you move from choreography very quickly into a realm of emotional uh, uh, understanding of self. And what fascinates me most about what what Tonya's work has done is it embraces that notion because you have now in consensual scenes, you have two people who are moving towards each other. So in order to do that with truth, they have to recognize in themselves that this desire might be there, could be there, is possibly there. And so the framework allows them to recognize that they will do that without necessarily uh, taking that on themselves. I'm kind of horrified by this idea that the industry is resistant to this because it's not real. When you don't give two actors swords and say, get angry and stab each other. Exactly. Like You don't do that with anything else in acting, right? Exactly. And, you know, early on, Um, Because I've been doing this work since, you know, I started studying it in 2004. Uh, 
early on, one of the, you know, the comments I would get was, um, what gives you the right to choreograph these scenes? Where do you get your experience from? Um, nobody's getting assaulted in theater was the biggest thing. Like, I don't know what you're talking <laughs> oh about. Oh, my God. Nobody's, that is a direct No, that's quote. true. In, in 2004, um, you have to, what was the thing that happened in Chicago? Profiles Theater. Profiles Theater. Can you real quick, I don't know if Tara knows that story. Yeah, I do not. So um, the artistic director of a company in Chicago um, had been, actually, this is what kind of launched some of the Me Too movement was, um, uh, in, in the theater industry at least, there was uh, a few women came forward with uh, publicly about abuse that had been happening at this theater in Chicago. It was a For storefront, years. 20, 25 years of abuse. And it was like this artistic director who was who had authority over everybody in the room. He, was, he had authority over casting. He was like fingering girls on stage. He was assaulting them. He was uh, physically manhandling them. So they had bruises on their necks and strangling them on stage. And they got awards for their fight choreography uh, because it was so good, quote unquote, um, so real. Visceral. Visceral. Right. Yes. Thank you. Um, and so it was celebrated, his his way of – and it was known in the community. Like now I talk to people in Chicago and they were like, oh, yeah, you moved to Chicago and everybody's like, don't work with profiles. And everybody knew it. But there wasn't anything anybody was doing about it. They were just watching people be assaulted on stage and rewarding his behavior until these women came forward with the truth and came to a journalist. And that journalist published this article, which you can find – I think it's on The Reader. Um, you can find it online. You just look up Profiles Theater and it's this long, horrifying – uh, you know, story of what he did to them. And that led to, um, I mean, it just exploded in Chicago and everybody was like, holy shit, you know, this is, this is a really big deal. And, and who else is being abused? And this is happening right under our noses. And how could we not see it? And it's horrible. And then other people started coming forward about their experiences at their company and then their experiences about their company. And that's, you know, all of these flashlights started getting shining into the corners of the industry. It started in Chicago and then bled out into um, everywhere else. Like like Harvey Weinstein or, or Kevin Spacey were like the they're the they're the high profile things. But when you start looking, it's the mm -hmm. tip of the iceberg. And it really is an iceberg. I mean, there is a lot and has been for years and years and years mm -hmm. and years. It's the outcome of what happens when you don't have protocol surrounding this work. When you have somebody who has authority and is in charge and is also choreographing um, and and no one can stand up to them because they're in charge of everything at that company. And so the power dynamics were the biggest problem. And we set that up in the industry of somebody's in charge. The actors don't have a say. They have to do what they're told and they don't get to report abuse. There's no process for reporting. And so uh, that's where everything started changing and Not In Our House was launched in Chicago. And that was essentially rules for non-union theaters uh, that, that needed to put in place practices of reporting when things were happening. And what happened was at that point, I had already established my method and the reporting system came forward of, OK, well, this is how we want to report harassment and abuse. And they still weren't solving the problem of what do we tangibly do in rehearsal to prevent this. Like there's reporting and that's great and that's in contracts. But what are we actually doing to change the behavior? Because we need to change our behavior. We have to change something in order for this to stop happening. And so that's where our method came in. Everybody was looking for a solution to this problem. And it was like, oh, well, actually, I've been researching this since 2000s. So I have your solution right here. And it was really a matter of right time, right place. Um, which I kind of felt like I was 
you know, screaming into the void for about 10 years. And then suddenly it became everyone's answer to the antidote to this toxic problem in the industry. Yeah. And it's I mean, it's 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 thousands upon thousands of people that this affects. And, um, you know, and the, the thing is that we we in the industry probably knew about this, but never talked about it. And uh, in, in this way, we were complicit all the time. Plus, and actually, I think complicit in a different way, because like me as a as a good guy or, you know, I like to think that way, I was I would be the person who, if I heard about it, could step in and do something. And but that's not a systematic solution. And the real problem is that it's not it's not just that there are some bad people. It's that the whole system, even when you have good people who want to do well, they're going to bad stuff is going to happen. Can can you uh, mm-hmm. can you tell Tara the story about um, uh, the play with uh, when you first realized? Oh wait, there's got to be a better way. Sure, is it my experience here? At yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So, um, uh, so I was cast in a show, Picasso with La Panagile, um, playing a role that required intimacy with uh, with my leading male counterpart, and he and I had been rehearsing this. Uh, we didn't know each other very well. In fact, I didn't like him very much at first, and I'm pretty sure he didn't like me either. We just didn't have any sort of chemistry, chemistry so to say. Um, but we just didn't know each other very well. And so we had to do this for muscle through this intimacy scene over and over, and it was always awkward and terrible, and it always just made us feel uncomfortable. And um, the director kind of got frustrated with us. <laughs> and uh, And during Tech Week... He was like, oh, my God, you guys, this looks so bad. Would you just please go rehearse this and make it better? And we were like, great, sure. So we'll go rehearse it. And we went into the lobby after rehearsals, 11 o'clock at night, dim lights and romantic mood. Nobody was around. um, And we started going over the lines. And uh, nobody was there. We didn't have stage management there. This is just how you handled things back then. There was no protocol for this. So we started acting the scene. And the moment we started acting the scene, we were like whispering instead of actually projecting. So that was automatically changing from what the choreography was. And then our lips touched as it had dozens of times in rehearsal. But because nobody was there, it was not the same kind of kiss. And we both knew immediately that we were just making out in a lobby. And um, and it immediately changed the energy of our characters. And we both were like, oh, that was good. We found some chemistry because it was real. It wasn't characters anymore. It was just us saying these lines and then and kissing, you know. So we were like, oh, let's do it a second time. We did it a second time and um, ignited some real feelings for each other in that moment. And so the rest of the night, it was like, uh-oh, because we both were in relationships at the time. And um, he was engaged and I was in a relationship and it was really confusing. And so he walked me home and uh, we said goodnight and then uh, thought about it. And I knew that something had changed and shifted. And the next day at rehearsal, um, we came to rehearsal to rehearse the scene. We performed it and everybody could tell something had happened the night before. They knew we were rehearsing in the lobby and they're like, what happened last night? And so it became very victimizing. It became humiliating because every all of our little, you know, our private sex life now was everyone's story. And so um, as a young female in the industry, your reputation is part of your career. And so I was pegged as a slut after that. I was I was known as a dangerous person because of this incident, because I had already been in a relationship with a, a married man who was leaving his wife. And now I'm wrecking this relationship because of this part. 
And so I was just done after that. Um, I ended up breaking up with my boyfriend at the time, um, who I later married. And um, and he broke up with his fiance so that we could date for three weeks in a showman's. <laughs> and every night we were on stage, we tried to relive this first kiss moment. This spark. And it never was the same. It was always like, you know, we weren't focused on the characters. We were focused on us. And it bled into our lives and, the, and our characters bled into our lives. And our lives were on stage for everyone to see. And um, it was embarrassing. And I was confused. And I was really young. And it was an academic institution. And it didn't need to happen that way. So it felt like there's nothing here to protect us from this. And I am not going to do that to my actors. I'm now a leader I'm going to be a director. I'm going to be a movement coach. I'm going to be a choreographer. I will not sit by and watch my actors go through this. Well, and even, you know, and even in the professional world. So in, in a in a academic setting, it's even more important. But even in the professional world. Anywhere. You have to think about. So I was cast in things where, um, you know, I, I was a play called Ball and I, I needed to have sex with pretty much everybody on this in this thing. And so that men and women and I'm a straight guy. And, you know, you're trying to figure out. How do we do this scene so it looks good and is repeatable and you're just left to, all right, well, I guess we're just making out. I mean, I guess that's what we do. And then you don't know what to do. You don't know what it looks like. And it's got to it's got to look real. But you have no protocol for the difference between making something real looking, which is the theatrical or film version of it, versus it just being real, which actually looks like shit on stage. Mm -hmm. I was I was thinking when all of the when you were talking earlier about everything being real, about how actually awkward and stupid looking real sex Absolutely. is. Absolutely. Like, you don't want that on stage. No. You just, like, no. bang your heads together supposed, and yeah. fall off the bed and like, get, like, the dog walks Half of the times like, I'm choreographing much more graceful things than are real. You, yeah, you don't you don't really want real right. on stage when people are paying money to see it, and, right? you know, you can insert things that are real looking like, oh, my, you know, I'm trying to take my shirt off and my shirt gets caught here and that's fun oh, you know, to do in some bend ways. Over, I've dropped my keys. Yeah, oh, yeah. you know, there are, there are styles of intimacy and there are, you know, like, you can do tongue-in-cheek, sort of cheeky stuff, or you can do something that is very gritty and raw. Um, it depends on the show and, the, and depends on the style. So there's aesthetics that come along with this now. So we're talking about an artistic interpretation of a sex scene, and that takes training to be able to do. Otherwise, you're just letting the actors do it, and God knows what their vision is because they're actors. They're not necessarily correct, you know, choreographers or directors. So a lot of this is taking the ownership of the intimacy off of the plate of the actors and putting it in the hands of somebody on the outside of the scene so that they can help the actors navigate it without making it up to them to figure it out on their own. So I was interviewing um, I was interviewing a, a person in Hollywood recently who was talking about how she, when she works with directors and screenwriters in Hollywood, she is trying to get them not to be accurate, but authentic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and she's an expert who's trying to get them to, to get her area of expertise correct when they're but she doesn't want it correct. She wants it authentic That's because right. she said it's they're storytellers. And so your your job is to tell the story, not necessarily accurately, but with the correct voice. So uh, there's and actually that sounds like what you're saying. Yeah, there's actually a theory behind it. The Indian theater, Sanskrit theater has a word rasa, which is uh, the the heightened interpretation of a thing. So in, in violence, for instance, a real fight looks ugly and terrible and feels terrible, right? But if I take that same fight and I make it rhythmic and I put it to music, well, now it's a, it's a, it's an aestheticized version of the truth, which, and it's the aestheticized nature of it, right? The aesthetics 
are what make it art, which is totally different than the real fight. And the same thing is true with intimacy. The aesthetic version of intimacy is different than the real version. I mean, it, it's authentic, but it needs to be heightened in some way or at least clarified in some way. Well, that sounds yeah. like all of life in general, which most of which is boring. Right. Like you don't like right. you don't it's, actually want everything you're shooting to be like real right. life. It's like, it's, it's like, like a lot yeah, of boring it's, in there. it's sex scenes with the boring bits taken yeah. out. Right. And, and, you know, to be honest, upon researching this and upon workshopping it and putting it into, you know, into practice, we've discovered that the perception of sex is so skewed because people learn how to have sex through porn a lot. And that's not even authentic in itself. So that there's, you know, stylization within pornography that is influencing the way people interpret sex in their lives. And that there's then that that's actually, you know, the way that you act when you are in bed with somebody is skewed because of pornography. And that's how many young people learn how to be with another person. And so that there is authenticity of intimacy that is has kind of removing itself from our culture because of the way that we learn about we don't talk about sex properly. We're not a sex positive culture. We talk about sex like it's something to be ashamed of. And in doing that, it has become non-consensual sex has been the majority of what we consider to be intimacy. And so what's happening now in this culture shift is uh, is that now that we're actually listening to more voices and that the primary voice of the stories that we tell isn't white men, which white cis men, which has kind of been what who's been sure. in charge. Now we have stories from other perspectives and those other perspectives are opening up what sex is for us, the perception of what sex is. And so in this process, there are less and less assaults being written into shows because we're starting to see that even, you know, normalizing that on stage is is making it more rampant in our culture. And so we have female playwrights that are trying to show what good sex is, because a lot of men don't know what good sex and consensual sex really is. They just know from pornography and pornography is based off of slightly non-consensual sex. So, you know, it, there's a lot of lessons of consent that have not been taught properly of listening to your partner, of when they are actually enjoying something or not, that it's not about forcing them to enjoy something. It's about are they actually, you know, are they actually participating in this with you versus I'm going to pleasure myself against you. And so we kind of get into a lot of those studies of, of, of what sex positive culture really means and how to put that on stage versus... I'm going to control and pow overpower you. So what I, the, one of the reasons I thought you would really dig meeting was um, – so uh, Tonya talks about this in two parts. But there's the, there's the choreographing stuff part of it, how to choreograph a scene in film. But there's also the sort of the deeper part, which is treating people like people and understanding on a really fundamental level what true consent is and uh, – and and there's application. So the choreographing stuff that has applications in film and television and theater, sure. right? But the treating people like people and changing the very nature of how we think of consent and intimacy and uh, power dynamics between people is like so much broader. And I think that's that's the that's the part that I thought you would really dig. It's the majority of the work is the philosophy behind it. So let me ask you to go back for a second and close the circle on your on your story about um, the guy and making out in the hallway. Mm -hmm. So how do you how do you as a choreographer now solve the problem 
of of the couple on stage that was you, right, where it's awkward and it's not right and it's not going well. How does how does being an intimacy choreographer fix that problem without sending the couple out in the hallway to make out? Right. So um, we uh, we have protocols in place to prevent them from having to take ownership of the choreography from the get go. So the method that we use is a five pillar approach. And um, this is our core document that we use for any intimacy direction. And all of our intimacy directors agreed to this document uh, if they're going to be with us. And it starts with context, which is um, understanding what the story is and agreeing to it. Everybody concurs that the story is this. This is what we want to tell. It doesn't matter if the director's like, I want nudity for nudity's sake. If the actors are on board, then great. As long as it, everyone agrees and the story is being told, then great. Um, but they have to agree on, on why we're doing this. Um, so context is the first pillar because we need the story to be to be agreed upon. Then we go to consent. And consent is making sure that um, that everyone is is enthusiastically consenting to the work as we go. And so uh, we make sure that people are asking permission to touch before just touching. So we ask the actors to be part of this conversation. We, we want them to to. Um, to be in communication with the choreographer and the director at all times. So I would be choreographing something and I'd be like, okay, instead of saying, okay, touch his, just touch his arm and he's going to touch your arm. That's giving them permission to do something. They still must turn to each other and say, is it okay if I touch your arm? Great. And then they continue. And that check-in is a crucial part of the work. Without that, they are just following orders and getting permission to do it, but they're not getting consent. Consent can only come from the people touching. And so that's something that we establish really quickly, and that builds trust. So now that we have trust, communication is the next pillar. And communication is allowing them to have space to talk, allowing them to have the space to, to, to verbalize when something is uncomfortable so that they can say, you know what, I just don't feel right about this. Can we just look at this a little closer? Is there any way that we could discuss this choreography before we just do it? And most of that is, let's go back to context. Okay, what's the story of the kiss? Who's the, initiating it? Who's following? Who's leading throughout? Does the lead change? Juliet kisses Romeo, or Romeo kisses Juliet at a four, out of, on a scale of one to ten, with intensity of a four. Um, and then she, Juliet, grabs him and pulls him in. The intensity level of the kiss goes to a six. And so they go six, six, five, four, three, two, off. We have a map for the kiss. So now the actors know what the kiss is going to do before they do it. They can visualize what the kiss looks like before they have to do it. They still can move around freely within that frame, but we have to give them the choreography first, which is the next pillar. So we've got consent, then um, context, consent, communication, and then choreography. We choreograph it so that it's repeatable. It has to be repeatable. It will melt and evolve as the rehearsal goes, but the choreography is never going to change. And so we harness all of the emotions that are part of it into that choreography. Um, if we feel like the choreography needs to change, then everybody's part of that process of deciding that it's going to change. Right, but so then I, as a guy in the scene, I can't take advantage. I don't get to change the choreography tonight because I want a no, quick feel or I want... not at all. But an intimacy call, you may say, well, I'm uncomfortable. I was wondering if I could go further with this. Is it okay if I do? Now we have a discussion about it. And then your partner can decide whether or not that's appropriate and if they feel like, sure, let's go further. I could have you go further. Yeah, could you grab me here and here? And we have a discussion as opposed to you just trying it um, because we have to agree first because otherwise 
if nobody's agreed and somebody decides to take into their own hands the choreography, which I've been in that situation on stage where, you know, I was playing Lady M and my husband, the guy playing my husband, uh, decided he was going to feel it that night. So he groped me a few extra times and added three kisses to the scene. And I didn't know that was coming. And so I had to accept it in character. And so essentially I was assaulted on stage in front of an audience because I didn't have any option of pushing him off. And that's victimizing. So what we want to prevent is taking the choreography into your own hands. So choreography must remain the same. It must remain repeatable. If it needs to be changed, stage management is part of that. And they have to notate because sometimes they have cues that they're following on you. Everyone needs to be part of the process. And then once we've choreographed it and everything seems to be set, um, then we have closure, which is the one of the most important ones, which is what separates the character's sex life from the actor's sex life so that they're not just assuming this is real. This is me having sex on stage. This is me having feelings for my partner. That's how I get it authentically. That's not that doesn't work for this. Method acting doesn't work for this. We separate the actor from the character and the character gets to have their sex life. The actor gets to have theirs and their actor's sex life is private. And we don't ask questions about it. We don't ask about orientation or past history. We don't say, well, you're gay. You can do this, right? We don't get to talk about that. That's private. Um, just and like irrelevant to the character. And irrelevant, totally irrelevant, because it doesn't matter. You know, somebody might say in the middle of class, like today, um, somebody said, well, I'm gay. I'm a homosexual. So, um, you know, and he continued. But that wasn't information I needed to get from him. It wasn't important to, you know, but he volunteered it. So that became something that we could talk about once he volunteered it. Um, and then it was a it was a question more than anything else of, of how the technique works. But the technique doesn't change based on your orientation. It's still the same technique. We choreograph it. We make it repeatable. And then we walk away at the end and we are able to tap in and out. And it's not real. And not carry that shit. And back not into carry your it out. And of course, characters stick to you sometimes. Mm -hmm. They're going to, uh, especially when you're in the run of something. But but it's not so much about that. That is personal to the actor's self-care. Um, what's more important is that we set a button at the end of the scene where we know we're not acting anymore. This is us closing that. We can be professionals now. But this is when we are being attracted to each other in the context of the scene. Now, High five. We're not doing that anymore. And we can be people. We don't have to worry whether or not it's real or not because it's not real. And, and you know, you can separate that from your work life, from your personal life. That's what's really important. And actors have not been separating those two things. And in the process, we have a lot of mental health problems due to this career. You know, we torture ourselves trying to find these moments and we don't have a healthy way of separating. And then we have showmances because of that. So this technique is is equal parts creating a technique where people actually have something to fall back on while protecting themselves from um, from being unsafe emotionally, because this is a profession where you have to use emotions at work. And so we have to have guidelines to do that. Otherwise, we're all just going to fall in love with everybody all the time. And that can be really unhealthy if you don't want to fall in love with everybody all the time. And there's and there's physical dangers, too. You were talking about uh fluid like on in film it doesn't happen in theater as much not as much but, but in, it can yeah but in film oh yeah the close-ups are the close-ups absolutely and um we have to put barriers in place uh it's a little more clinical on film you know they use adhesives uh, and put barriers over genitals so that you know there's no fluid exchange because that's now we've got health issues going on 
Um, you know, we have to work around certain things and we're not asking actors for STD tests. It's not sex work and it shouldn't be sex work. That's a separate profession. So we want to make sure that we're keeping everybody safe uh, physically. And also, you know, it's also unnerving to be rubbing against somebody uh, and feeling them through your clothes, which is all we had before to protect ourselves. It was just, okay, put this sock on your penis and rub against each other. Sock and a prayer. A sock and a prayer, <laughs> essentially. Yeah, that's Alicia's quote. Um, so, you know, that's that's not enough. We need to make sure that we... And then once you have a barrier, then you can rub a little more freely because you don't feel it. And it, is, and it looks more aesthetically accurate without risking the health of the actors. So, um, so there's that side of it. In theater, we mask with sheets, clothing, angles. There's a lot, you know, it's a lot easier to have a little more distance uh, in the angles. But it works just like stage combat. You got to make sure that you're cutting the cord and the audience can't see the illusion. The actors know what the illusion is, and they also know the story they're trying to tell. The audience just sees a magic trick, sleight of hand. And um, they think that that hand is touching somebody's genitals, but that hand is touching somebody's inner thigh. And then we sell it. Um, and so all of that specificity is part of the technique. So so you've basically created this profession, this yeah. industry. Yeah. How does somebody else get into it? What is what, what would someone else's credentials be for being an intimacy choreographer? Um, we require right now, uh, we have a pedagogy intensive. We have apprentices that learn this and we mentor them. Um, we do not recommend people step into this without training. And what's happening now is because it's so needed uh, in the industry that people are just assuming they know what they're doing by just, well, I'm a fight director, so I know how to choreograph yeah, sex. I think actually that's that's probably the, the biggest danger right now um, because like I I have choreographed sex scenes before, but not not because I marketed, but I'm in doing a, a fight scene. And in a lot of plays, people have uh, stormy romances, right? So there's fights and then there's also uh, – Bleeds back and forth between the fighting and the sex. Yeah, vigorous sure. vigorous sex. So it's, you know, it's, it's back and forth. So I'll go in, I'll get hired to do the fight and then they'll say, well, can you take a look at this? And then there's something else going on. But if I choreograph it the same way that I, I do a fight – See, as a fight, I get to step in and go, hey, let me be you for a second, right? But in a, but it's awkward. Uh, uh, one of the first times I met a, a well-known actress, I said, um, okay, and I wasn't sure how to ask, like, are you wearing underwear? Because uh, we should do this. Here, I'll, are you okay with? And it's just very, it's, it would be much better to have an actual protocol. And I think uh, the, one of the problems is there's probably a lot of, people who have experience doing different types of physicality who think that that experience is the same right. as this. Right. And, and it's, it's not. not. It's not at all. And um, there's a sensitivity training that comes along with this. There's implicit bias training that gets along with this. Mental health first aid that that is part of this, that we train in the pedagogy how to be diplomatic and how not to victimize when we're choreographing and how not to put ego in the room because that's so much a part of a lot of other industries. And, um, you know, that you cannot walk in with an ego in this work. You cannot. It, you will immediately set people off not to trust you. And so there is a persona that comes with this that we teach teaching personas at our workshops, at our intensives, our pedagogy intensives are about what persona do you need to have that can disarm the room 
And in this work, you know, you need to and maybe you're not teaching the same way that you teach this other specialty that you have, you know, because um, as a fight director, I can say that I had to walk in with bravado because I had to walk in and convince everybody that I knew what I was doing. And what that means is being less feminine in the room, whereas as intimacy director, I play up my femininity and it changes their energy. And so there is a, a persona that goes, and that works for me, but we do have men that do this work. And they have said, well, you know what? I look like what everyone assumes an aggressor looks like. I look like somebody that has assaulted all these people. I look just like them. So I have to work twice as hard to disarm a room. And we, we talk about that in our intensives of, of what do you have to do to disarm the room specifically? So it has to be tailored to the person. To create trust. Yes. Honest trust. Yes, yeah. absolute trust. Because intimacy you cannot have with coercion. It's got to be trust and vulnerable. So um, so we, we have apprentice programs where they observe us and come to workshops with us or they come on gigs with us. Um, it's a right now it's a two year apprenticeship where you become an apprentice and we um, we lecture. Most of our lectures are done via the Internet because we can't be we don't have like a school that is one tangible place. So we do online. We call them brunches where I pick a topic and we lecture, you know, I lecture on a certain topic because there's so much of this information that they need. It's a it's really a master's program um, waiting to happen. So uh, so we do these brunches so that they can get this information and then they have to go out and um, and get work. But we don't recommend anybody do that without training. And we teach these fundamental workshops so that they get an idea of what the philosophy is behind it. And then really, the more they learn, the more they realize they don't know, which is kind of how most things should work. <laughs> really. Right, right, right. Um, and so the, the more training they get, the more they realize, oh, my God, I'm in charge of everything in this room. I have responsibility for these actors, emotional trauma and safety. And so they, you know, they take it very seriously. And it takes a long time to become certified with us because of that. And because there is no training system except for ours right now of training more intimacy directors. We're the only organization in the world that I know of that is training more intimacy directors. Um, we, we know of other intimacy directors. We have rogue people who are on their own that do this work and they might be great. I don't know. I only can speak for the people who come through my program and our program because I can tell you what they've done and I can tell you that they'll be safe. But I cannot say anybody who doesn't have this training, I will not vouch for anybody or vet them because I haven't seen their work and I haven't seen their energy in in front of me. So we recommend people that we've trained and um, it takes a while to get that training, just like, you know, it takes a while to become a fight director. It should, at least. You can't do it well, after theory, one yeah. workshop, right? I hope not. Hopefully not. There's eight weapons <laughs> and kind of more if you think yeah. about it. So for us, there are a lot of specialties within intimacy. There's, you know, some people specialize in intimacy with minors. Some people specialty, you know, specialize in which you can't do intimacy with minors, by the way. Um, some people specialize in consent. Some people specialize in um, non-consensual scenes, sex scenes, or consensual sex scenes, or stylistic. You know, everyone has an aesthetic to it. So within the artistry of this, and it is an art form because there are different perspectives to it. Um, it's it's actually a really philosophical, big layered onion that you can just keep unwrapping and there's just more and more and more detail work to it. 
So I want to. I don't want to go too long. Sure. So I want to. I just want to get a taste. I could talk wanna, about it f- well, all year. And I think it's fascinating. And we, <laughs> and we. And if you were here, we'd do more. And next time you're in town, we'll do it again. Sure. But I want to. So the people who may be listening to this, in theory, mm-hmm. right, are like you were at the beginning of your journey. Uh-huh. They weren't entirely sure what they wanted to do with their lives, but they. Um, don't want to have to start all over again, right? Mm-hmm. So they've come to a certain place in their lives and they're going to try and maybe they want to make a difference in the world. Um, oh, and this, we had this conversation. I, I want to get this recorded. It's interesting. When I first started talking about this podcast with Tara and other people, the idea was that it was going to be people who had made a change in their careers mm-hmm. and how did they pivot their careers that way. But I realized really early on the first few people I mean, the first half dozen, dozen people that came to mind right away that have had to reinvent themselves without starting over were all women. Mm -hmm. And so there's sort of this mini season of just strong women who are not necessarily changing careers, but are advocating for a new way of doing things. Yeah. And, and, And I don't know if they're mostly women that come to my mind first because that's just who I know, or is there something inherent in the way the world is built Sure. makes it so that women have to do this. It's not a woman's world. So none of these roles were created for us. We have to create them ourselves. Intimacy direction didn't exist because women were not people. They were objects. And so we were treated, you know, this this came out of the most statistically abused group of people were women and people of color. And so, you know, this technique came out of having to remind the men in charge, because back then there were more men directors than there were women and there were more men professors than there were women. And it was reminding them, you know, like we actually we're actually being abused and it would be great. We would get you would get better work out of us. You would get sexier work out of us. You would get more consensual work out of us if you listened, you know, and that that was. I'm sorry. what? <laughs> exactly. So, you know, part of this is paving a way for a new specialty that didn't exist because women weren't important. Our perspective wasn't important for the longest time. And of course, it's important now. People want to hear from women. You know, I like, I, you know, ideally they want to hear from women. But there is no room for this because it's not a, an industry that was made to listen to us. So now we have space. We have the ears of, of our privileged friends who, um, honestly, this work would not be where it is if I didn't have my white cis men standing up for me. If I was just a woman screaming into the void still, um, no one would listen to me. It would be a woman's movement and nobody would care. But what's gotten it first and foremost in people's minds was I was advocated by for like with with professors, with mentors that were men that had priorities, that had privilege. And they decided to pay attention to this and say, this is important. Everybody listen to her. Listen to this woman while she talks. That's how this got into the forefront. I was I was told I was given the opportunity by men in charge to speak. And so somebody passed the mic to me. That's why I'm here. And so it would be irresponsible for me to take the mic and close the door behind me and say, I made it. Everybody else can can F off. You know, I have to hold that door open for everyone else. It's my responsibility to do that. So I have to pass the mic to everyone else behind me. Otherwise, this means nothing. And um, and so that's another part of the movement is listening to more perspectives and hearing what else we've been missing, because this is just women we're talking about that have a voice now. Right. You said that writing the book has been hard because it's changing so fast all the time. Yes. 
so um, right now, so if you if you take just a snapshot of where you are now, you you really are poised on the brink. No, you've you've passed the threshold of changing the world. The world is now pivoting. Like the world is changing, right? You, I mean, you said it yourself today. No one's going back. Yeah. Right. No one. Now that we know that there is a better way, no one gets to go back and pretend that we don't know. Right. So you you have crossed the threshold, and and it is pretty clear that the the future, like your path forward, is pretty clear to you now. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, which which must feel pretty good. It does. Sometimes it's scary, but it feels good. But if you go back, if you went to back in time and saw you when you were before even you started doing your thesis, right? Mm-hmm. If you if you were right now through this microphone talking to somebody who's there, who's like, I have this idea or something or a desire. I know that something's not right, but I don't know the way forward exactly. Mm-hmm. Like because you did not take a straight line to get from where you were to here. No. There was a lot of different curves. Yes. What would you tell that person right now? I would say um, we have a gut for a reason and uh, we know when something is right. And no matter – how many people tell you that your idea is naive or that, you know, that's just not the way you're never going to convince the industry. You're never going to change. One person can't change the industry. And the reality is that that's not true. Um, if you have an idea that is the right way to do things and you believe that it's the right way to do things, um, it will unfold itself to you because people will agree with you. If it's a good idea and it's going to fix something that is broken, people want to fix things that are broken. And so I would say stick with it. Um, don't let somebody else influence you into giving up on something that you believe to be the truth. And um, it took a long time for me to even see my own truth in this work of why I was doing it, that that didn't really become clear to me until very recently. So did you, so when you were first starting, you, like, not only did you not know all the techniques, right, and you didn't even know all the questions, mm-hmm. you didn't know, I mean, what did you, what, what was the one thing that kept you moving in this direction? Um, recognizing bullies and not wanting them to win. <laughs> Spite. Um, I, I don't want to call it spite because that seems like a negative thing. I mean, I don't want to say that it's revenge, but it's almost like justice mm. of, uh, you know, how much I saw, how many how many unethical things I saw in front of me or happened to me or, you know, even in, you know, younger than that uh, of people who victimize other people or people who victimized me. But, I, you know, I'm not I'm not the immediate retribution kind of call. I'm going to make you suffer. It's okay. This is a system where this is allowed to happen. So what we need to do is change the system, not punish this one person. They're only behaving in the guidelines of the rules we gave them. In our industry, we said it was okay to abuse people. Well, we need to change the industry then. The industry needs to be less abusive. And so um, so it really was a matter of, um, okay, well, now I'm no longer in academia because I was kind of bullied out of it. Uh, it's time for academia to change because it's the right thing to do. And so, um, so you kept moving because it was the right thing to do. I kept moving because my gut told me it was the right thing to do, and I knew that I knew that it was going to make the process better because I saw a better process whenever I did it. I saw actors open up. I saw the work improve. I saw shows stand up on their hind legs when they had been just like meh 
before. Now suddenly the actors are engaging and they feel safe. And when you have actors that trust each other and feel safe and their choreography is better and the stories are better being told and it's more efficient, it doesn't take more time. Um, to me, it's a no brainer. And, it, and it, it was curious to me why anyone would resist it. But, you know, I was like, OK, well, the industry can resist me, but I'm going to work like this. And so anybody that works with me knows that they're going to be safe and they're going to look good. And that's all I needed to do. And then I just kept pressing forward with that. And then eventually it created a ripple <laughs> effect. And um, and here we are. So I want to close with a, a leading question. Mm-hmm. So um, one of the exercises we did were talked about was the uh, breathe. If you if if you get a yes, if you ask yes or no, and somebody says no, right, as you're crossing, you have to accept that. Breathe and pivot to a new question. Yes, right. That's the that's the exercise. It's an improv game. Yes. Um, I I think that's a unique metaphor for. Uh, how you did this. So I'm, I'm going to, so this is my leading question. Does that accepting failure and breathing and pivoting, is that, have you used that in your life or is that metaphoric or is it just sort of? I think that that is how I live my life. Um, you know, a lot of my, I would be, I'm not going to get into this because it's too long of a story, but my medical life has a lot to do with my professional life. And the fact that I have a chronic rare disease and I've had two kidney transplants that have failed, um, that has has made me deal with failure in different ways of like, okay, this kidney's failing. (sighs) Breathe. I need to find a kidney. That's just what I have to do next. I can't just sit here and mourn the loss of my kidney. I have to do something or else I'll die. So, you know, it forces you to deal with things in a different way. And having a disability has made me who I am and given me so many struggles on top of career struggles that have made my path so much clearer of, okay, well, and if I can overcome kidney failure three times, I can handle this person in my way of making this a thing. You know, that's not nearly as big of a deal as the threat of death. I should have probably mentioned this. She is also an advocate for uh, rare diseases. Uh, Tonya suffers from a a disease that is literally killing her as we speak. Sure. And uh, eating her kidneys away. There are several of them that she has. You have five kidneys. I have four right now. Okay. I'm about to have five. And uh, so she not only travels the world talking about sex scenes, she also travels the world talking about (laughs) bringing down prices, drug prices, so that people can live. It's a side job. It's a, si- a side job is saving people's lives. That's her side well, see, job. Then I should and, have said living. that when I was talking about the person I worked with in Hollywood, it's somebody who works on organ donation stories oh, in yeah. um, in Hollywood scripts. So we'll have to talk about that later. Yeah, yeah. That's okay. a whole different topic. Yeah, that's, my, that's my side life. Excellent. Well, yeah, we'll, yeah. Have to, we'll have to talk about that offline. I love that your side life is staying alive. It is a side, <laughs> a side job. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thanks, Aaron. Cool, right? Yeah. What do you think of the studio? <laughs> That's the important questions. The important questions. It's great. You need to fawn over your studio some more. Yeah, and it's cool. It's great. Oh, I'm glad Aaron, that you your did studio this. is so. Oh, nice Stop. studio. Glad- Oh, yeah, more, more. It's good. It's cool that you decided to do a podcast. I mean, that's that's cool. Well, I have people. I have people.
So I have a weird life, right? Yeah, you do. I have lots of weird jobs. Mm-hmm. And I thought I can't be the only one who has figured out how to turn success in one area into success in others. Yeah. And I have a bunch of people, I have about 100 people who I know are trying to figure out how to do this. Because, you know, you train in the arts and there's only so much you're going to do with your life. Right. But that's the great thing about artists is that they're good at so many things. Yeah. So, I mean, you have to be if you're a true artist. Yeah. Yeah. And but in the in the process of doing this, I realized that there's probably uh, it's probably not just artists. Yeah. Right. I, I was talking the guy who the guy who owns this uh, building or rents the, the person who owns the business. One of the people who owns the business that this studio is in. As I was describing this, he was like, oh, so it's not just artists. It's also like the the woman in Kansas who's got her job and she can't afford to go back to school, but she really wants to do something different with her life. Like, don't quit your uh, – I thought about calling it don't quit your day don't job. Don't quit your day job. Don't quit your day job. Yeah. Right? But it's not about that. It's about reinvent yourself without starting over. Yeah. 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 Because, you know, nobody wants to start over from scratch. I mean, well, you can't. it's no really one, tough. You, very few people have the – Resources right. to do that, right? At a right. certain, I mean, I mean, and I mean, time resources too, as you're well aware. Absolutely. At a certain point, you're like, I, I can't, because uh, I work in medicine, and I was like, ah, I would love to be a doctor. I'm not going back. No. Well, you know, that was my thing about going to see a career counselor when I quit my job, and they were like, you, you, you test that you should be a lawyer. You should be a lawyer. We've been talking to you. You should be a lawyer. And I'm like. I should be a lawyer, but I'm 40 and I'm, right. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm 40 and I can't pay off that amount of right. student loans at back. this point. So I'm not like, going back. Yeah. 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 yeah, forget it. Anyway, so should we do dinner? Yes, let's do it. Absolutely. Visit reinventionpodcast.com for transcripts and free resources.